Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Safwan, thank you very much for taking the time. And what is the situation and the mood in, in uh, Beirut today as far as the demonstrations against the government are concerned? Thank you for having me. Well, we feel in Lebanon, once we walk in the streets and we enter the protests, that people are not only sad, but people are angry. And this is obvious within the expressions, within the slogans that are being um, said out loud by people. This explosion has opened up so many wounds for the Lebanese that any solutions offered by the same political ruling class and government does not seem acceptable or appealing or convincing to them anymore. And so we have a total, do we not, of uh, seven members of parliament, including two ministers who have already resigned. Yes, um, some of the uh, members of the parliament are still working on their resignations, so these will be official tomorrow morning. And we are hearing a lot of talks about more resignations to come from the cabinet itself. Okay. Well, I read your... um your op-ed piece, several times. And uh, you you wrote, on Tuesday I was settling down on my desk in my home office in what appeared to be a regular evening in the city. A striped mug filled with hot coffee was sitting next to my laptop as I scrolled through my phone when I felt my chair move and my desk shake. Then something exploded. Would you describe the scene for us, please, in your home at that time? Well, I've covered I've covered many events in Lebanon and on the borders and sometimes even outside of Lebanon in the MENA. In Lebanon, we had our fair share of war and of explosions. Um, and we're always, for some reason, we're always um, ready for an earthquake because, you know, we live in an, uh, um, in an area and in a, in a region where earthquakes are expected. The, nothing came to my mind when my desk shook. Um, I didn't think that uh, it's more than a regular earthquake. But there was a weird feeling that it's, it was like there's a lot of pressure over my head. And I've lived through an earthquake as well, and it didn't feel like that. So the first thing I had in my mind is that we have the International Tribunal for Lebanon for the assassination of Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, who has been, who was assassinated in 2005. So the tribunal had its decision um, to be made on the 8th or 9th of August. So my first thought was that, okay, this is not an earthquake, this must be an explosion and it must be an assassination. But the, uh, the scene at home escalated from one second to another. I simply moved to tell my father that I think that something is happening and it's not over yet. And um, he understands because he knows that I really have a sense when it comes to these things because of my work. So I was really staring him in the eye, trying to explain to him that something is about to happen when the second explosion hits and um, we we flew over the room and all of the doors um, went wide open and there was a lot of dust. And um, for a second, we all felt that something exploded right next to our house. It must have just felt like a cataclysm, which, of course, it turned out to be. Um, when, you, when you look at Beirut today, these days after the explosion, what do you see? Um, it, looks like, um, it looks like a war zone that I never um, 
imagine that I would see again. I grew up in a war-torn country in the 90s as I was growing up. I used to uh, pass by downtown where my school was, and I remember that it was um, there were holes in the buildings, everything was destroyed. It smelled horrible because the country was coming out of a civil war just when I was born. And today, as I walk in the city, I just feel that it's happening all over again. And what we spent 15 years trying to polish and build um, was taken down in less than five minutes. The city looks hurt, and it feels as if it's a really sad and destroyed city today. You wrote, Lebanon is no longer a country on the edge of collapse. It quite literally collapsed Tuesday. Yes. Go ahead, please. It, it did collapse, in my opinion, because um, we were just waiting for that one, one little um, glimpse of hope uh, economically, socially, with coronavirus, everything was overwhelming in Lebanon. The hospitals, people were scared to even go into a hospital, not to overwhelm it with patients. We had medical equipment that were missing and that were sh- we were short on medical equipment in the country. And we had, we already had so many problems happen in Lebanon, especially the economic crisis. And to just think now that people literally don't have a place to stay, um, so, yes, it did fall apart, but at the same time, a little glimpse of positivity, even though it's really hard to get this out and to just say it as it is, the community has been very inspiring in the past two days. Everyone has been mobilizing. No one is being left in the streets, not by anyone, even if people have to share food and rooms or, you know, split the piece of pita bread in two, they would do it just to help out a friend or a neighbor or even a stranger in the city. Well, that is very encouraging to, to hear and the best of human uh, kindness and, and caring stepping forward. Um, Luna, just one more question for you. What now? I mean, you write it will take months to rebuild what has been destroyed. In fact, given the pace that any reconstruction project in Lebanon moves at, it might take years. What are you expecting? Well, sadly, we have a problem that goes beyond politics in Lebanon. We have illegitimate weapons in the country um, that are controlled by one of the ruling parties in the country. And without solving this problem and taking back um, taking back the, uh, the pressure uh, of the army and of the security forces and having uh, a disarmament plan in Lebanon and giving back all the power to the government, I don't see that any transparent solutions will happen because what are we asking um, uh, the government to do if you have illegitimate weapons and a, and a party that controls them? You can't have... Uh, transparency, you can't have reconstruction in the country, and you can't demand people to be held responsible for storing tons of material um, that killed, you know, dozens or hundreds in the city uh, while having a powerful party that is armed. So sadly, I think that this is beyond politics. It's beyond just a resignation of a government. Um, We need a total reform, and we need uh, one army to have enough power in Lebanon, just as all of the countries have. I think this will start a more transparent um, process of change in this country. And is there, in uh, about 30 seconds we have left, is there the possibility, the likelihood, that the army will in fact take over from from, from the corrupt government that's in place? 
Um, well, for the military to take over, I don't think that this is a scenario that would happen. However, I think that a transparent international pressure that doesn't impose anything in Lebanon, but that actually helps Lebanon recover from all of the clashes and the wars and the sectarianism might actually help lead back um, the weapons and the arms into the, uh, the arms of the right people. Uh, the army, the security forces, the people who should be defending the country. Uh, Mr. Bryan, thank you very much for the time. Do we have reason to have concern about personal freedoms we believe sacrosanct? Do we have reason to believe they've been compromised by governments during the pandemic? Oh, certainly. I mean, you're right to say they're under pressure. I mean, I, 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 I think that... Uh, the experience for Canadians has been uneven, uh, depending in part depending on where you live, which um, uh, which is one thing we've learned from this pandemic that uh, pandemics, at least uh, yeah, pandemics, are, are going to be managed. It would seem by uh, provinces and municipalities primarily, and the role of the federal government is. Uh, yes, to deal with the, the sovereign border, but but you know, in terms of day to day impact on our liberties, you know, we, as you say, we we until the pandemic came along, the presumption was that we had the freedom to do what we wanted to do, uh, subject to the criminal law and subject to some um, uh, regulations that were by and large. Uh, similar across the country. Now you've got a situation where um, the, the way in which some of the, the rules are enforced is different. Uh, for example, in central and eastern Canada versus western Canada. And uh, you've got some uh, laws, such as mobility laws, to go uh, between provinces um, really uh, being looked at in a serious way for the first time, I think, in the, in the history of our country. Uh, you, the, you know, we're in court right now and, um, in, in Newfoundland, and Newfoundland is taking the position that, that Canadians do not have the right to come in and out of their province. Uh, they have the right to live in the province. They have the right to reside in the province, but they don't have the right, apparently, to go into the province, maybe to decide whether they want to live there or not. And that, that gives a province and a territory, the, the uh, a number of the territories are doing that, and a number of eastern provinces are doing that. That gives them the kind of power that normally a sovereign would have, a sovereign country would have. And it, you know, we're arguing that's contrary to uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms under uh, Section 6, the mobility rights of Canadians. And right. so, they're, they're, you know, it's, yeah, our, to, to answer your question, our freedoms are are under assault, but I, I have to say that a number of governments are uh, taking uh, some rights seriously enough that they're thinking about the impact on rights when they pass uh, a law that's infringing on people's freedoms, and there's an effort to make the restriction proportionate. Okay. We also had the situation, though, you mentioned it was primarily provincial and municipal governments, but we did have Mr. Trudeau with his finger on the trigger, as it were, to uh, push forward emergency federal legislation, and it was the provinces and the premiers who largely dissuaded him from doing that. That's right. So uh, under uh, the, the, the federal government could... Uh, if a province or territory says, please come in and run this province uh, during this emergency, 
the, the federal government does have the legal power to do that. But what um, because it's a because it's a pandemic, because it's a healthcare crisis, uh, the uh, presumption, uh, although it wasn't entirely clear, and I don't think we'd all put our mind to this uh, as a nation, but because healthcare is administered by the provinces and territories, because it's not run by the federal government, it made more sense for the uh, for the provinces to be. Um, running emergency management, but you know they can only run emergency management for their province, and right. as a result, we as a result we don't have a, a national approach to this. We have a decentralized approach to emergency management. Now, I've been seeing, I've been reading quite a few emails, and I've seen it on Twitter as well. And that have to do from from listeners uh, who are concerned about the the health of our freedoms, and have concerns that once governments enact emergency legislation, regardless of the situation, once it's done, then it's perhaps easier to control a population when politicians or governments consider it necessary. Mm-hmm. We have the Ontario government extending its emergency declarations and rights of a person losing a job to expect immediate severance not so long ago. Is there, do you have concern that uh, once the barrier is broken, that, yeah, uh, it could become easier for maybe the next group of politicians to say, or the next governments to say, well, we need to declare an emergency here? Well, that, was, that certainly was our experience in Canada after 9-11. Uh, what happens at airports has forever changed, and the way that our freedoms and liberties are comp- are, are infringed at airports and at borders um, has changed. The the powers of surveillance in the name of fighting terrorism, similarly, which is you know kind of symbolized by the U.S. Patriot Act, so called. Uh, you know, the, the Patriot Act is still operating in the United States, you, you know, even though it's it's not like we're in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So because of our experience with 9-11, because of the experience with anti-terrorism, people are understandably concerned that once governments get in this business of being so authoritarian, they're going to continue along with this kind of behavioral engineering that is going on right now. And yeah. And there, and again, I find that there's a different approach. The British Columbia approach is different than the Ontario approach, and different from the uh, the. I, I understand, but Mr. Bryan, what you're seeing, the pushback that you're seeing from Canadians is fairly similar. It's a concern about somebody's going to say to you, "Get back in your house," right? Or uh, as, as rational as it is to some people, it's not rational to others. Wear a mask. We had a situation in Montreal, thousands of people protesting. Yeah. Uh, just yesterday, against uh, the requirement to wear a mask, right? And uh, you know, it, it, it does need to be said that that, that the right to protest uh, is uh, has has been respected there and needs to continue to be respected because that, it's a, that's a powerful voice. Yes, it uh, is. The concern with masks is less a you know the actual infringement on somebody's liberty is not significant to put on a mask. The problem is, I think some people question the necessity of it. And secondly, uh, they just don't like, and, and, you know, I personally don't like it either. Um, uh, yeah, I don't mind being told, look, if, if you want to be a good neighbor, wear a mask. Yeah. It's one thing to do that. It's quite another thing to 
you know, what happened uh, just a few weeks ago. The police come in, arrest, and throw down someone, and it's Tim Hortons for not wearing a mask. Yeah, it's it's uh, the mask is symbolic of the concern I people have. I think about government overbearance. Yeah, that's right. I think that's so, right. And 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 then you know the other examples are going to be uh, giving new powers to police and and uh, bylaw officers to do things that previously was really totally harmless behavior. Like like this distinction between I, I, you know remember the park benches. Uh, you yes, know, I do. You were, you're allowed to sit on the park benches, and then you weren't allowed to sit on the park yeah. benches. And and the dad, the dad skating with his kids, right? Rollerblading with his kids. Those were just, I think, absurd bootstrapping of public order uh, goals into right. public health justifications. When in okay. fact, it had nothing to do with public health and everything to do about power and control. So 57% of Canadians agree with the name Eskimos being dropped by the Edmonton CFL team. 43% disagree. And when you add that number to the majority of CFL fans, 55%, and the majority of residents of Alberta and Saskatchewan also disagree with the name change, what do those polling numbers tell you overall? Yeah, it, it shows you, well, it tells you a little bit about just the demographics of, you know, those places like Alberta and Saskatchewan tend to be more conservative um, we've seen in our polling historically that um, the conservative kind of population of Canada leans towards saying that things like political correctness have gone too far and that we shouldn't be doing things when, when we talk about the Johnny McDonald uh, statue being taken down in various places or changing names. Conservatives tend to push back on that. And, and that's basically what we're seeing here. Um, you mentioned that uh, CFL fans, 55% of them say it was the wrong decision um, when you look at where our CFL fans are, we asked the question of how closely you follow the league. And really, you know, Saskatchewan, 45% of, of residents there follow the league. It's 37 in Manitoba and 27 in Alberta. If you look at a place like Quebec, it's only about 12%. In Ontario, it's only about 14, 15%. So the CFL fan base is really concentrated in those areas. And I think that's why we see the pushback there. It's 55%, but it's a smaller portion of the population. And that's why when you add everybody in, you get a majority of that 57% saying that it was ultimately the right call, uh, even if people in the home province don't necessarily agree. So, and I was going by the numbers that I see from your, from your polling, of course. Demographics and gender, how do they play in on a national level? Yeah, it's, uh, it's young people who are, are more willing to make that change. We saw this when we asked the question, um, we asked about a number of team logos last year, and young people were the most likely to say that they were offensive and should be changed. You know, the, the Washington Redskins are no longer going by that name. That, that preceded the uh, Edmonton announcement by about a week. Uh, there's some pressure on the Cleveland Indians now as well, of the MLB, and they're, they're looking into potentially changing their name. And it really is the, the younger generation that is pushing those movements, you know. Um, and we see that here, you know. We've got uh, 72% of young women, 18 to 34, who say it was the right decision to change the name. 63% of men in that age group. And where you see pushback is men over the age of 55. Uh, 57% say it was the wrong decision. And I think that, that speaks a little bit to uh, that mindset, but also just the fact that um, those are people who have a, a longer-term history with the league, with the CFL, with the team, uh, 
like the Eskimos and, and kind of see a, a little bit of their their history kind of crumbling away, uh, even even if it is just a football team name. It's something that people have decades of memories with, and if you're a, a fan of that team, I, I, I think people can understand why there's a hesitancy to change it. But the, the argument that these are kind of caricatures of, of people and, and cultures, I think, kind of wins out ultimately and Canadians lean towards saying that we should be changing these names, and we see that for a number of examples. You know, it's interesting you we were talking about this because about 20 years ago, maybe even longer, I interviewed the lawyer who represented uh, an indigenous group of, uh, uh, I think it was, it was a marketing, I think it was a marketing issue, uh, David, had to do with the, Washington Redskins then and removing the name, but it had to do, I believe it was marketing. I'd have to look back, but I spoke with the, with the lawyer who represented the indigenous group. And, uh, and we took that issue to the air then. And as a lot of people have done over the years about Washington Redskins, I'll, I've always had an issue with that name. And, and I asked people, asked callers what they thought. And it was almost, it was virtually unanimous. No, no, you don't want, you, you can't change the name. You shouldn't change the name. And uh, I remember one of the uh, then Washington Redskins linebackers was asked, what do you think should happen? And he said, well, look, I'm African-American. Why don't you ask somebody who's indigenous um, North American and ask them what they think and then let them make the decision? And I thought that, that I always thought that was a very wise response. Yeah, and, and we've seen um, that these, these names, in certain cases, really don't uh, offend uh whether it's Indigenous people or Native Americans, you know, there's this famous Washington Post survey that they did where they they did uh, a survey of 504 people uh, across the United States in different states and asked them about that name and as a Native American if they found it offensive. And they got really an overwhelming response of 90% saying that it doesn't bother them. I remember that. So, so it's, it's it might not be a personal offense, but I think there is this movement to kind of get away from um, using... Uh, people and their cultures as as mascots, that type of thing, because it is you can think about it in a way where it is sort of dehumanizing, um, it is kind of othering. Um, so it, it's a really difficult balance, and I think that that's why the teams have taken so long with this, is because there are groups who it doesn't offend at all. There are groups who say, you know, hold the signs that say we're not your mascot, um, and they're very powerful beliefs on on both sides. Um, so what what really I think weighed this was when the advertisers came in. You saw it with FedEx in the United States, uh, with Washington, who, who sponsors the field, saying it's time to change it now or we're going to have to redo our, our arrangement. And you saw it in Edmonton. The, the uh, marketing um, kind of partners came in and said, we think it's time. We think it's, it's the right move to do. You know, there might not even be a season this year. Let's get it over with and take some time. Um, and ultimately, it is the wallets that are talking, and, and I think that both franchises, while they will, it'll be an expense to go through and change all of this, they're probably both looking forward to having new gear to sell and new marketing merchandise and all of the kind of fun things that come with it, even though uh, some longtime fans are, are certainly going to be disappointed. But the suggestion isn't made that everyone who disagrees with the name change from the Edmonton Eskimos to whatever it's going to be eventually, there's not it's not being said or put a position that everyone who disagrees with the name change is racist, is it? No, and I think that um, you know there there are various levels of it. There are people who um, 
make an argument that it is, that it is kind of an, an honor and it was meant to, to be something that was positive to, in the community. Um, I think that was a very difficult argument to make with the term Redskins, which really, you know, no, I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Objectively more offensive. But, but if you're looking at the, for example, the Edmonton Eskimos, uh, is, is it, is it, is it a reality of 2020? Uh, or are people who have supported the name and continue to support the name, is there an underlying position that these people are somehow racist? I, I don't think that, um, everybody would say that, but I think that is, that is sort of implied by, uh, proponents of the name change. Um, and it's, it's hard to tell because these are, these are things that, um, generally when you get closer to the communities, they really resonate differently. We, you know, we saw yeah, very true. Um, polls in Edmonton where people say, you know, don't change the name. This is just a part of our community. This is something that we've accepted for a number of years where uh, people with an outside perspective look at it and say, you know, how dare you? That's, that's a racist term. So I think there's, is a lot of judgment that goes into that. But I think it's also valuable to maybe not judge people that harshly uh, when they're close to the situation and that they might not have heard all of the information and, and the arguments against it. Um, because generally when people have more information or they have somebody coming forth and saying this is offensive to me because uh, people are, are generally pretty sympathetic to that. But I think it's just that some sometimes the arguments don't get through and sometimes there's a lot of judgment coming from the outside. Uh, and, you know, when you see these polls, we, we consistently see that it is a firm majority of Canadians who think that uh, it's not necessary to have names that, that people think are offensive. So, so uh, when we look at, Canadians when we see the, about it. when we see the 57% of Canadians nationally, the 55% of CFL fans, when we look at the numbers as you explain them to us, it's, it's a, it's a greater propensity then, or a greater sense in Canada than those numbers portray that the name should be changed. Yes, and we saw this last year, actually, too. Uh, the, the McGill Redmen changed their name, um, right. which was an interesting one, too, because they started out just calling the team that because they wore red jerseys, but then they started using Indigenous uh, kind of iconography for their, their uniforms at, at various periods, so there was a real push that. And we asked about that name, and we saw 56%, so almost the exact same proportion uh, of the population that if they see something is potentially offensive, they, they would like to see it change. Susie, thank you very much for the, for the time. And how did COVID-19 first strike you? Hi, thanks for having me, Roy. Uh, well, back in March, I went to um, a screening at the hospital. It was March the 19th. And a couple days later, I ended up with a sore throat. It was a very mild sore throat. Then I had some trouble swallowing and um, felt like my throat was a bit paralyzed. Um, so I was a little bit worried that I might have con- contracted the COVID, um, but I wasn't entirely sure because at that time, there, the telltale symptom was having um, having fever. So anyways, I went through a multitude of symptoms, a uh, sinus infection that wouldn't pass for a few weeks, uh, did a couple of courses at antibiotics, then some uh, ear pain, um, ear infection, then I got a dry cough, then I suffered shortness of breath, uh, change in taste. And then the, um, the virus seemed to get into my GI tract where I was having um, all kinds of symptoms there. Um, gas, heartburn, stomach acid, diarrhea, um, abdominal pains, cramps, nausea. Uh, then it went into my heart. Um, I thought I was having a heart attack, uh, twitching, irregular beats. And the list of symptoms just went on and on and on. 
until finally I made it down into the hospital. Not until June, though, because we were all sort of told to uh, manage our symptoms at home. And really, nobody wanted to make a trip into the hospital if they didn't have to, not knowing if we had COVID or not. So, yeah, we just stayed at home um, and finally went to the hospital and had the test done. The doctor said, you know, it sounds like you probably have a, a case of COVID. We'll just do the test. Um, it'll probably come back negative, but uh, we'll do it anyway. Um, it was June the 2nd. My initial onset symptoms were uh, March the 21st. So it was over two months after my first symptoms. So, and you were not eligible for testing in March, were you? Yeah, that's correct. So there's this is uh, something that's happened to many of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably thousands across Canada is that uh, we didn't fit the criteria to be tested. So, so, we so did the did tested. did the test come back negative? The test came back negative. That's correct. And so, officially, you never had COVID. Officially, that's right. I'm not one of the the numbers that's counted by the government, which is another thing that is throwing people off. The numbers are mm-hmm. way off. So, how long have you been now? Let's call it COVID free. Uh, well. That's if you, I mean, if we can even say that you are. Uh, according to the government, recovered means uh, basically that you have a negative test. It doesn't mean right. that you're symptom-free. And so I've had symptoms since March the 21st, and I'm still um, suffering with ongoing symptoms. Uh, now, the symptoms come in waves, and they come and go. So I'm not suffering anymore with the first symptoms that I had, but now I'm suffering sort of the long-term symptoms, which are, um, they seem to be very neurological. Brain fog is a huge issue, uh, fatigue, dizziness, I have tachycardia, I have issues with my heart now. Um, also, I'm still suffering from gastro issues, insomnia, um, tinnitus, brain uh, brainstem issues. So there's a quite a bit still going on, and it's already after, you know, five months from getting the, the initial virus. That's ter- terrifying. I mean, I, I looked at your uh, Facebook page, and I've done some research on what happens post, supposedly post-COVID-19 when you test negative, and I've seen, uh, as you pointed out, the, the symptoms you, you mentioned, but also profuse sweating, terrible fatigue, muscle and joint pain, as you said, chest pains, pounding headaches, gastrointestinal issues, shortness of breath, and, uh, and 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 this is all on. with. Uh, I'm sorry. We did a poll in the group, and there were about a, a hundred different symptoms that we came up with. Yes. Wow. How many people do you have on the group now? Uh, so the group has grown to 2,300. It was started back in June, the end of June, and it's growing very quickly. And everyone in the group has dealt with COVID, or is continuing to deal with COVID with this new reality. Uh. That's right. Um, now, it is a support group. We do have people that are supporting others. Uh, we're finding that it's a very lonely time. Um, it's hard to get help. It's hard to be believed when you're living with the stigma of having a negative test result. So we're just there to be able to discuss with one another without any, um, without any judgment. Right. When you go to seek medical assistance for the symptoms that you're living with now, and you tell the medical personnel, the doctors, the nurses, the the, uh, on, the the staff people what it is that you've experienced from the very beginning. When you tell them what you just told us, what's the response? Right. Well, that's a really great question because a, a lot of us are finding that it's really hard to get the medical help that we need. Um, I had an experience of going to the hospital and, and was uh, told that I shouldn't be at the hospital because 
the hospital was a place for people who had acute um, illnesses. And uh, I'm having a lot of um, mobility issues and things going on with my brain that are really, you know, quite scary and, and need to be looked into. And 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 they're just not helping uh, much at all. So they're turning people away. And especially if you have a, had a negative test that so many of us have because we were denied testing. Um, so it's pretty scary that, that you're not being believed. So as well as, you know, suffering from the illness, we're having to sort of reach out and make people believe us. And I understand this has happened this has happened to doctors as well. This has happened to doctors. I mean, there's a whole demographic there. We're just young, we're old, we're of all uh, jobs and ethnicities, and it's happening to Canadians across across the map. So this virus doesn't hold any uh, bars about who it's going to affect. And you don't know what it's going to do to you. That's a great point. Yeah, you absolutely do not have any idea what will happen when the virus enters your body. It's really like drawing a wild card um, as to what symptoms you're going to have. Like I said, there's a, a list of symptoms that we came up with, and everybody seems to have their own specific COVID journey, as we say, um, and, and nobody's journey seems to be the same. We're all different. We're all, you know, it gets into your body, and it, it, your body is, is how it's going to handle it. Yeah. How, how, how do we find your uh, Facebook page? Right, so it's called COVID Long Haulers Support Group uh, on Facebook. And COVID Long Haulers Support come Group. And down and read the stories, and there's a lot of information that we've gathered, and um, it's a, a safe place to be if you have COVID and you need support. Okay, COVID Long Haulers Support Group on Canada. Facebook. Canada. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for the time. When you listen to Susie Golding, what are you hearing? Well, there's a couple of things. So first of all, I, I, obviously I won't comment on her particular story, but this theme in general is, is clearly concerning. It's, it's certainly concerning. I, there's a few high-level points, though. One is that no matter what the cause, people need to be listened to, right? People have symptoms. We obviously need to listen to them, have compassion, and ensure we get to the bottom of it and give people the best possible care. That's, that's really the foundation for everything. Digging a little bit deeper, um, I think we're going to see, when we think about COVID-19 specifically, the vast majority of people that get this infection are going to recover without ever having been into hospital and move along with their lives. And that's, yeah, that's going to be the end of that. And that's going to be the vast majority of people with COVID-19. That's what we've seen to date. Uh, there's good data demonstrating this, and that's, like the, you know, that's likely going to continue. There's going to be some subset of people. I'm not going to say how big because I don't know, but it's going to be a small, it's going to be a minority of people for sure, as it seems to be, uh, that are going to have persistent symptoms, that, that certainly do have persistent symptoms, uh, as, as we heard some of them from the prior guest. If we look at those people who have persistent symptoms, I think we're also going to see that, and I'm not talking about your previous guest, some of them will be due to COVID-19. And some are going to be completely unrelated to COVID-19. And I think, obviously, this, this is just an area that we don't know enough about, but needs to be explored. There are cohorts. There are people evaluating this. There are groups that are enrolling patients into studies to follow them longitudinally to see how do people do long term. So we'll know more about this. But I think the high level points of regardless of the symptoms, everyone needs to be cared with compassion and listened to. Uh, certainly the vast majority of people will recover fully from this infection. 
and some people won't and will have some persistent symptoms, and, and, and clearly that needs to be studied. Yeah, when you look at uh, um, symptoms such as uh, the profuse sweating, terrible fatigue, uh, brain fog, muscle and joint pain, chest pains, pounding headaches, gastrointestinal issues, shortness of breath. We've heard about COVID damaging lungs. Uh, does that sound like any other viral infection that that's out there? Yes, it actually does. It sounds like a lot of viral and non-viral infection. Uh, you know, when you when you test when so so how does the negative test factor into all of this? With that. How does the negative testing factor into everything? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of points. I truly believe that some people who recover from COVID-19 will have persistent symptoms. And I still think that of many people who are having symptoms, which are real symptoms, by the way, that are having persistent symptoms that are true symptoms that tr- truly need to be cared for, might they, 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 they might not have had COVID-19. They might not have had it. And, and, and I'm not trying to sweep anything under the rug. Like if people have symptoms, if people feel unwell, regardless of the reason, they need care. They absolutely need care. Some will be related to COVID-19. Some will not be related to COVID-19. And, and, and that's an important distinction to make. I think the other important distinction to make is most people who have COVID-19 won't have this. And that's also important. But I don't think we have, it's not fair to say that we have all the answers because of course we don't. We've only known this virus has existed for seven months. But certainly uh, people that have a severe infection, it often takes weeks and weeks and even months and months to fully recover from that. We know that uh, from data from other infections. We know that if people have been, for example, admitted to an ICU infection or no infection, if people have survived an intensive care unit, they might have deficits up to five years after discharge from an intensive care unit. So critical illness doesn't mean you're going to just spring back and bounce right back on your feet. Like there's a there's a good there's a good uh, literature base describing this. So I don't think this is entirely unexpected. And I think we'll hear more about specifics related to COVID-19 as we move forward, as we study this cohort of people. Yeah, these people do do need the medical attention, obviously. Um, taking temperature to determine presence of COVID-19 as a screening tool, not effective at all, according to uh, one of your colleagues, Colin Furness, infectious diseases epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. Uh, in a global news story, just taking the temperature. The FDA in the United States suggests temperature checks alone may miss up to half of infected people. And Travel Medicine and Infectious Diseases Publication, I don't know anything about them, you would, uh, went a step further declaring temperature checks on young adults as being virtually useless for screening. Talk to us about screening. Sure. So before we just totally write this off as being useless, like let's temper this with some common sense, Okay. Yeah, we get it. Not everyone's going to have a fever. For that temperature check to work, you have to have the right symptoms, a fever, at the right place, at the right time, and even even above that. We know that some people know that there's going to be a temperature check and take acetaminophen or another fever-lowering drug before those temperature checks. That's like a well-trodden path. We know all about this. Um, having said that, there's two approaches to this. One is that you're not no one's pretending that this is the be all end all of course it isn't and no one and the people that are using this don't say that this is going to be the screen this is one part of a much bigger system this might add some small incremental benefits small keyword small but incremental is the other keyword here's the second approach 
The second approach is remember when we didn't have temperature checks? Remember the hysteria and the outcry? What are they doing? How can they not screen people at the airports? So there's a ton of optics that go beyond this. And that also tempers people's anxiety about travel and, uh, and alleviate some of this anxiety about travel. I th- and, and I'm not saying that this in a skeptical way. I'm truly, I truly think there's a lot more to adding a tiny bit of incremental gain in, in, in identifying people with COVID-19. And the other incremental gain is alleviating anxiety with travel and its optics. And I think we could be transparent about that. It, there, there is an element of optics there because when there wasn't temperature, when their temperature checks were not there, people were crying foul that how could we be so cavalier to not have temperature checks? Now right. there's temperature checks. That people are crying foul that there's temperature checks. You'll never make everybody happy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.